Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Dr. Freeman. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Um, I want to acknowledge you as Dr. Freeman, and from here on out, I'm going to call you Tyrone if you don't mind. Sounds good to <laughs> but, me. Sounds yes, good. Um, but I am delighted to have you on the podcast. I have been enjoying your book. Uh, we're going to talk about that, and so we'll get we'll get all that information unraveled here in a few minutes. Uh, but before we do that, I just like to ask my guests to introduce themselves. Um, tell us who you are, sir. 
Well, thank you very much. I'm Dr. Tyrone McKinley Freeman, and I'll start by saying I'm the son, grandson, nephew, and cousin of African-American Baptist preachers and first ladies, and that influences my view of philanthropy and the work that I, I do. Um, I am associate professor of philanthropic studies at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and I have a long background in fundraising, um, having worked for uh, grassroots community, youth and family social service agencies, as well as higher education institutions. And um, I also, for a period of time, was the associate director of the fundraising school. So I've had a chance to create curriculum and to teach and interact with fundraisers around the world. So I'm very happy to be here with you today. Okay, so Tyrone, you can appreciate this. So I'm of the opinion. So I spent most of my fundraising career in the faith-based space, so raising money for faith-based organizations. Mm-hmm. And I think actually some of the what we might would call sort of this um, simmering crisis of ideology that we have in the fundraising space is actually grasping for things that the church might actually be able to teach fundraising. What's your Mm. thoughts on that? Well, you know, one of my favorite books on fundraising is, uh, you know, Growing Givers Hearts by yep, uh, yep. Jevons and Rebecca Basinger. And yep. it's just, she's a very I, good friend. She is. Okay, wonderful. And that, I yes. mean, that book is over 20 years old and it has always yes. resonated with me. And uh, I mean, it speaks to the tradition I grew up in and was raised in. I was surrounded by generous people who would never think of themselves as philanthropists and didn't use that language, right? But they were giving was an important sense of who they were and what they were called to do. And so um, the way we think about it in the profession just doesn't just doesn't correlate. So but that idea of growing givers hearts, working with people, providing opportunities to live one's faith or to live a a value or an ethic of generosity, I think, is a very compelling and powerful aspect of of fundraising as a profession. Yeah, Rebecca lives about. 35 minutes north of me, and we occasionally meet at the uh, what's called the Baker's Diner, which is just wow. And so we periodically, and last time we got together, we'd actually talk. It's just a couple months ago. I'm looking around me, trying to see if I've got my copy of Growing Givers Heart somewhere around me. <laughs> That's um, right. But it's one of it's one of the first books that I recommend to my um, to my clients generally. Uh, yeah. and, and I was probably reading it when she and 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 Tom Thomas is that Tom, Tom, is that Tom Jevons name? yeah I know Tom, Tom very yes. well but I've never met Rebecca it's it's a fundraising yeah. and ministry Go, growing givers hearts yes that's a, yes that's a yes book. it's yes. a fantastic little book a thick book and um and uh, and I've 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 always recommended that to my clients <laughs> so Tyrone you have written a book that I have had the pleasure of getting about halfway through um and um. And that's what I want to talk about today. But what I think that's what we're going to talk about today. But I but we like to start the conversation with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, so before we dive into uh, Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving and, and really sort of unra- unravel what you've got there, how about you just tell us what your big idea or bold opinion is and we'll sort of land with the book. Sure. Uh, for me, the big idea is that philanthropy uh, does not come from wealth exclusively. It comes from generosity. And that generosity has more to do with our our hearts and our dispositions rather than our our pocketbooks and our bank accounts. And I think that's important because it it shows that philanthropy doesn't belong to any one group. It's not just what the wealthiest among us do, but it's part of our collective human heritage. And it's something that's evident in all types of communities, ethnicities, backgrounds. It really doesn't matter. Um, No one kind of corners the market on giving. Um, It's how communities have survived across history. And and it's very important. And we saw a lot of giving during this pandemic in very important ways, though 
the the kind of the, the monetary ways were what kind of grabbed the attention. But there's a lot of mutual aid going on, a lot of neighbor looking after neighbor, family members yeah. looking after families. All of this is a part of this tradition of giving and sharing. And so I, that that's the idea for me that it that it's about generosity and that that disposition, that willingness to engage, that willingness to share, which then means it's not about kind of spending a life accumulating wealth and then later coming around to giving uh, in, in old age or after one's made it. It's about what what can you give now as an expression of who you yeah. are, who you aspire to be, as well as in, in, in response to, to the needs around you, the suffering around you, are also nurturing the potential around you. So that that's those are the kinds of things I think about and also grapple with in the book. So here's a question for you. So why is it? Do I think? So I have read the. the I'm 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 certain you're familiar with the uh, the generosity studies that they did at Notre Dame, and I think mm-hmm. Berkeley picked those uh, studies up and did some additional analysis or something. But I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on why. After I after I read some of that information coming out of Notre Dame, I think they called it the science of, of generosity. I didn't see the fundraising community um, sort of embrace that and make it useful. Did you notice that or do you, do you follow sort of what my thinking is there? Um, and, and, and the reason I asked that question, sort of clarify why I'm asking that question. You know, one of the things that came out of that study um, is that, um, you know, they basically said a third to maybe a half of our population just doesn't have the inclination to be generous. Maybe they weren't raised in the church. They just sort of weren't taught that way. It's more of a formative thing. Maybe we're just maybe there's just a slice of our population that are not sort of nurtured into generosity. And I don't know if that sort of aligns with sort of the status quo definition of how we want to go about our fundraising activities. And so I've often wondered if that's perhaps why we, why maybe I didn't hear a lot about that particular research when it came out. What's your thoughts on that? Hmm, that's that's good. I, well, so I am familiar with. It. In fact, my colleagues are are very much uh, involved in it. Um, uh, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy is a sponsor of it and a partner. My yep. colleagues Sarah Conrath and Dean Amir Pasik and Patrick Rooney and John List. Um, they're all uh, running that and, and offering that. And you know, it's it's a great question. I think we're always concerned about the relationship between research and practice, and that how can you know we bring data to the table that can help fundraisers be more effective, and then also how can we listen to the challenges and needs of, of fundraisers, donors, organizations, and allow that to influence the kinds of questions we ask. Uh, we've known for a long time that there is this percentage of the population that just doesn't give. Um, yeah. And I think I think it is an opportunity to, for, for fundraisers to think about who they are reaching out to, um, what's behind the nose that they get sometimes. And and, yeah. and, and and for some, you know, whether it's it's accessibility or willingness for some, if, it, if it's a matter of economics, if we're talking about monetary giving or other forms of inclination, I think it is it is a reminder uh, to fundraisers to be um, ever, ever aware of the various factors and forces that influence donors um, and how those should shape the way, the, the strategies and ways that you build relationships with them. Yeah. So I'm guessing you and I, so that's, that's a good way to sort of lead into the uh, conversation about the book. So uh, Dr. Freeman's book for our listeners, Madam CJ Walker, uh, Walker's gospel of giving um, extraordinary book. I've read about half of it very much enjoyed it. Thank you. So the question, first question sort of comes to mind based on where, so Walker's, generosity as you're describing it was nurtured into her it was taught to her and so that sort of is a good way to sort of lead into her story can you sort of can you sort of talk to us about this notion of what is generosity why we should be paying attention to it and why maybe we should be 
thinking about it through the lens of, you know, some of our people out there that we might be trying to reach out to maybe just have not been nurtured into being generous. Yeah, well, I think um, Madam Walker's story became the perfect way to kind of deal with some of these issues. And just for, for, for the audience, she was a turn of the 20th century African-American entrepreneur who built mm-hmm. a beauty culture empire, uh, international sold products, um, uh, not only across the country, but overseas. And again, at the height of Jim Crow segregation in America. Um, so she was born in 1867. She died in 1919. So from from just after emancipation from slavery to just the end of World War One is the time period we're talking about. And um, but she was also incredibly she was very generous and, and she was generous in this idea of not near the end of her life after she had made it, but across her lifetime. And I tell the story of how she began giving um, in her early 20s when she was this poor, struggling, widowed young mother um, in St. Louis, Missouri, embraced by a local church, an African-American church, St. Paul's African Methodist Episcopal Church, which still exists to this day, doing big things in in that community. And uh, this church had set up a safety net for African-Americans who were beginning to move out of the South because Jim Crow was being erected around them. And they're searching yes. for better opportunities. They're trying to protect themselves and their families. And 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 St. Louis became this way station for many. And and this church kind of pulled together and partnered with other Black-led organizations to, to receive folks and to help them either get established in St. Louis or rest up so they can keep moving uh, wherever their migration was taking them. And so, so Sarah, she was born Sarah Breedlove was her birth name. Um, she enters into this after, again, having been orphaned by the age of seven, having, you know, married and then lost her husband, having this young daughter with her. She's really trying to figure things out. And, and, and it's the women of the church who really embrace her and help her get on her feet. And they're demonstrating this kind of gener- generosity that she later becomes uh, very much known for. And so part of what I wanted to do was to not only tell that story, when we think about millionaires, we tend to put them on a pedestal. She d- eventually did become a millionaire, but I wanted to very much put her back into the context of the community that produced her and the cultures of generosity that shaped her. And so one of those cultures came from the black women around her, um, through the church, through clubs, um, who were doing these same things, who were looking after others, who were giving money, giving time, who were speaking truth to power and dealing with Jim Crow as it was emerging in St. Louis. Um, and, and she's soaking all this in. And she reports that it was during that time in her life that she first began giving. Um, yes. and so I think it's a very powerful lesson here because, again, she's very much in need. She doesn't know how she's going to care for her daughter, yet she finds herself in this culture, in this community. And to join it, to be a part of it, she begins giving. So um, uh, I think that's that's something to keep in mind regarding generosity. And then we see that generosity unfold as she acquires more resources. She gives more. So this is a different model that you can give along the way. And, 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 and give what you have because there are ways to have impact. There's somebody who can benefit from your time, your talent, your treasure, your voice, your advocacy, your support. Um, and, and as you acquire more, give more. So the idea is don't wait. And then if we look to that, you know, she's this, a, a young black woman in Jim Crow America, right? She can't afford to wait, uh, right? If she has agency and, and, and wants to bring down Jim Crow, wants to have freedom, right? She realizes she, she's contributing to that too. So she can't afford yeah. to wait. And, and really, African-Americans can't afford to wait. That's why you see 
African-Americans' history in America is filled with forms of resistance and advocacy and movements and, 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 and all these things trying to bring down, whether it's the system of slavery, the system of Jim Crow, whatever it is, throwing anything and everything at it because you can't wait. The suffering is every day and it's very real. And so it's very instructive for, for what's going on today because today the, the tradition of giving is in, among African-Americans is very vibrant and it goes directly yeah. back to the things that she and her peers were doing. And she learned it from the generation that, that kind of took her in. So it shows that, again, this, this philanthropy in the African-American community is not new and emerging with something that fundraisers have been liking to say recently. It's something that goes back to the foundations of our country. And it speaks to uh, this notion of generosity and also speaks to ways of expressing one's humanity in spite of larger circumstances, striving for something bigger, and also resisting um, and, and, and dealing with some of those day-to-day pressures and challenges. Yeah. So as I'm as I'm reading the book the last couple of weeks, and I, I posted a very, some very profound uh, quotes on, uh, on LinkedIn, and we got a lot of buzz sort of talking around that. And so I was very anxiously uh, anticipating this conversation. So I'm interested in sort of hearing your thoughts on so, and I'll give you some context to why I asked this question. So I'm, I'm currently uh, authoring my own book primarily for the benefit of our consulting team and our clients. And it's, it's, it's really sort of formulating what is our theory of fundraising. And it much more aligns with what you're talking about um, in, in the book here and what Walker's Gospel of Giving would be all about. But it also aligns almost perfectly with what I was taught in the church in terms of this idea of, of, of developing or, or going back to um, Rebecca's book, for example, you know, you're, you're growing givers hearts. You're, and I, and I'm, I'm oftentimes I'm, I'm repeatedly saying here on the podcast and elsewhere that fundraising at its best is very pastoral. And I'm oftentimes describing it as a, as it is like discipleship, right? So you're, you're growing these individuals, you're nurturing and sort of training them up. But that's not a model, and this is part of the message you're getting at in the book, that's not a model that sort of aligns with the way that we approach mainstream philanthropy. You know, when we think about fundraising, um, we basically have this sort of this mass-produced, sort of very commercialized sort of way of raising money, giving Tuesday sort of things in direct response. And then we've got the super wealthy, wealthy people writing really extraordinary checks. But there's a lot of fundraising that's going on in the middle. And there's a lot of un you you refer to it in the book as unseen giving right and 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 it's happening now and it was happening then and it will probably always happen but but these are also donors who are giving in very meaningful ways that are not going to in my opinion are not just going to s- simply tolerate you know the being in the direct mail stream and invited to the annual gala i mean they want meaningful interaction um but that's a missing piece in sort of what we teach at best, at best, and, and then I'll stop rambling. But at best, we could say that the major gifts programs at major universities would be maybe the closest that you might come um, to this unseen. You refer to them as sort of this unseen middle. You described uh, yeah. Walker as an unseen middle. I think yeah. that's a very profound thought. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So what I'm doing there is I'm trying to position because this this book kind of started out for me. How how do I make sense of someone like Madam Walker in this history of American philanthropy? And the way yeah. that we think about the history, we write about it and talk about it is we usually focus on on the, the wealthy. So a hundred years ago, Carnegie, Rockefeller, those folks. Today, it's you know it's Bezos and 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 you know the Gateses and those and those folks. Um, yeah. And so th- there's one. And so there's a lot of things that have been written about the the, the very wealthy. Them. Then there's this yes. other. 
another side that does look at kind of the masses and some of the large Giving campaigns, Tuesday, and yeah. the March of Dimes and other things that have been done historically, Community Chess United Ways that reach the general public. And so then I said, well, you've got this woman, Madam Walker, this black woman, which is important, right. um, who, yes, who she, she her wealth will never reach the heights of Andrew her peer, Andrew Carnegie or, or John D. Rockefeller. And yet she can do more than the average giver, that the typical giver that's caught up in some of these other community-based campaigns. So how do we make sen- sense of her? And, and the added element here is about race and gender, um, because we also d- tend not to ascribe philanthropic agency to people of color or to women. And so we focus on uh, wealthy elites who, because of our history, tend to be white. Um, and, and so there, w- there was no way to kind of make sense. None of the historians I had, was looking at had, re- had written about Madam Walker. There just wasn't a place for her or this tradition that she represents. And so what I'm trying to do is situate her there and just saying, hey, um, um, this, she comes from this vibrant tradition. She didn't create it. She was socialized into it herself. It's been here since the foundations of the country, and it's, and it's alive and well today in everything from the Me Too movement to Black Lives Matter to any number of of manifestations, giving circles and others that, that African-Americans are engaged in today. So it's important to see uh, giving in this community on its own terms and not try to force it, uh, force another set of lenses or another perspective in there. So the giving doesn't mimic uh, what what uh, some of the billionaires are doing. Um, it doesn't mean it does not exist. And so I wanted first and foremost to challenge the field to see people of color as agents of philanthropy. And and of course, with her being a woman, that also complicates that because we tend not to, to see women, right? Um, uh, and so really, that's what this is about. And I think, too, to your the larger point of your question, um, one of the, 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 the tools that I use in the book is this idea of the moral imagination to really yeah. get into the, the psyche, the, the, the motivations behind what Walker was doing. And I looked at those institutions, those relationships, those contexts, those places that influenced her and from which she got this sense that, hey, you know, I, this isn't just about me. I have a responsibility to what's going on around me. And how am I going to respond to that? And so I show how she was shaped by the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which had a whole range of teachings on charity. Um, it was building institutions for African-Americans in a Jim Crow society where education was not being provided. So they were building schools and, and they had an international agenda. So they were working overseas, again, in ways that really blew young Sarah's mind coming from a cotton plantation in Delta, Louisiana. She wasn't used to being in a place where, where black people had agency and were doing things. And so, um, so, so the church is a place that influences her more. Washerwomen influenced her, her moral imagination. She, one of her first jobs was working as a washerwoman. And it turns out that uh, after Reconstruction, black washerwomen in the South weren't just menial laborers at the bottom of the economy, that they were actually thought to thought of and looked at as pillars of their community. And they mm-hmm. were known for giving to charity. They were known for mutual aid strategies and, and supporting mm-hmm. each other and, 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 and actually also advocating on their own behalf and dealing with local issues on the ground. And so the thought that this was one of the first jobs that she held, it was an important part of her identity. She always talked about it in her public speeches. And when we look at what those women were doing, we can kind of see this agency popping up again. So so I try to show all these things, these forces, these cultures, these ideas that were shaping her sense that, you know, I need to give, I need to be engaged, I have this responsibility to others. And so it, it also reminds fundraisers, I think, to think about the moral imaginations of the donors they're interacting with. 
what has shaped them, what has drawn them, what what do they worry about, and what do they want to, um, uh, what are some of the issues they they aspire to address and want to partner with to 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 deal with, um, because that's really what 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 you know, I tried to show that story of Walker and her philanthropy unfolding across her lifetime, and that's why it does kind of just gradually develop rather than something that's kind of not happening and then suddenly happens when she's old and gray. Um, it's a different model, and I think it's more accessible for everyday people because most people will never, you know, we will never become Andrew Carnegie's and, and Gates's, right? Most of us won't. Um, but we can do what, 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 we, what, what we can with where we are and what we have. And so that makes Walker an accessible model of giving that I think anybody can follow. And I think it reminds fundraisers that everyday givers are just as important as the high net worth givers. And we need to be open to that and rethink our campaigns um, to be more accessible and more diverse for, for different types of pathways for engagement. So I've been saying this for a couple of years, right before the pandemic, I was speaking in uh, out in the western uh, suburbs of Chicago to about a group of 100, about 100 nonprofit leaders. And I said, I said, as the baby boomers solidly officially transition into retirement and they start giving away money in ways that they had perhaps have, have thus far not perhaps been given, start giving more asset-based gifts as opposed to uh, income-based giving, perhaps, um, I think they're giving their expectation of the relationship. I said to this audience, I sort of surprised myself. Um, I, I said, I said their expectations are going to be twice as high and their gifts are going to be half as much as their parents gave. And, and, and in many ways, what I was describing about this perhaps 65 year old baby boomer donor today was not a whole lot different than this donor that, that you, then, then Walker's exchange with Booker T. Washington that you're describing here. An expectation that you're going to, you're going to essentially negotiate this gift. And I'm not going to necessarily, I'm going to give to you for a long time because a 65 year old baby boomer today is going to give for perhaps 30 years. And they, they're, they're, they're largely of the opinion that they're going to outlive their parents and they may or may not feel like they have as much affluence, you know, wealth to give away at this particular time of life as their parents did. And when I was reading your description of Walker's dialogue with, with Booker T. Washington, I thought that is, that is perhaps this enormous, that is representation of this enormous group of 65 year old baby boomers who have yet to be engaged in meaningful ways, but who cannot necessarily hit that, who, who are not quite frankly ready to hit that six figure level but have never been engaged to even give, you know, more than 5,000. They're, they're not going to give you $5,000 in the mail, for example. Um, you're going to negotiate that gift. And if you won't engage with them, you're going to miss out on that opportunity. Do you see how, Dr. Freeman, do you see how I'm sort of looking at that particular constituent today through the lens of that story that you tell here in the book? I, I, I think I do because uh, one of the challenges so so for for your listeners, um, I tell a story about how Please Matt do, Walker yes. was being solicited uh, for a gift and and the um, she is upgraded um, and doesn't right. take too, doesn't take too kind to being upgraded experiences yes. as a rejection 
of the hard-earned money that she's trying to give. Right. And, and we don't tend to think about that when we approach fundraisers. It's pretty normal We don't <laughs> to us today, right? Um, but it was offensive. And so um, she really lets uh, Booker T. Washington as the solicitor, and you'll recall from your history that he was the, the head of Tuskegee Institute and yes. a major um, African-American political leader at this time. Um, and so she wanted to support his work, but she felt like he, she, he wasn't seeing her on her own philanthropic terms and was trying to get her yes. to do something that was more in the lines of Andrew Carnegie rather than herself. And so she was demanding to be seen and understood on her own terms. And this is another dynamic with, with um, so, uh, someone who is developing their wealth um, and, and kind of giving it away at the same time, right? There's not yes. some big lump sum that she's sitting on and then she's just doling off percentages here and there. She's actively creating it and trying to hold on to it and grow it and trying to invest and give it to, to, yeah. to move the needle on. So, so it's a different dynamic than somebody who already has it. And, and this, this manifests many ways. So it manifests in that baby boomer you're talking about who now has to think about retirement years very differently than their parents did. It manifests in, 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 in high net worth donors of color. Um, who we know tend to be first generation wealth. And and yep. so this idea of actively uh, accumulating it and maintaining it and trying to hold on to it while also, you know, doing some things while you can. And we also know that the, the, those donors tend to have a larger sense of family responsibility, uh, that they're caring for more people um, that, are, that are impacting their ability to give. So, it, I mean, it, it speaks to understanding really the, the context of the donors' lives um, uh, as, as you're interacting with them. And, and, and Washington was just not seeing Walker and not really understanding understanding what she was trying to do, what her, her potential and limitations were. And, and she was very, very offended at that. And so I, I, so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting story. And I think it, it does challenge us to, to see donors on their own terms, understand what, what they're dealing with and how that in, will impact the interaction that we're trying to have. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think, I think there's a lot of organizations that are currently being led by people who are sort of in Booker T. Washington's seat and as you describe in the book, they've perhaps, they only see philanthropy as the Carnegies who are literally sitting on their board. And then they see Giving Tuesday and they don't see that there's perhaps a, just a, just a myriad of people who sort of represent the walkers in their constituency that are going to set the, they're going to set the bar high. And the reason I drive the, I sort of drive the, uh, the, the, frame to um to the boomers is because you got this enormous population who I think can be engaged in very meaningful ways, but I don't think they're gonna make it any easier than she did. Um mm. yeah. <laughs> they've been you know they've had their way for a long time and uh and I think they're gonna be an interesting so so talk yeah. to me about so I have done my homework. I, in graduate school I did my homework. I shared with a little bit with you um, the, the, the story, the interaction between Walker and Booker T was very intriguing, and I, th I, I made sure to find all the passages where you reference that relationship. But I'm interested as a scholar, if you would sort of contrast, if, if Walker was giving to, and I understand it, apparently Walker also had a relationship and was, was interacting with W.B. Du Bois, who was also an individual, was thinking th through things and much the, you know, wrestling with same, some of the same issues at the same time in history. How would he perhaps have done that differently? Do you think? Yeah, it's or would he have done it differently? 
Well, so um, it's very interesting. I, I don't know that he would because one, well, well, there are letters in the archive where he solicited Madam Walker. And there's one I vaguely remember where the, uh, he was on asking her for money about uh, supporting an arts organization that was trying to retire its mortgage and, and, and she declined. But um, yeah. so so I think, you know, the, the method would probably be the same. But I think where Du Bois would be um, uh, a little bit different is is that he was very critical of, of, of white institutional philanthropy. He had a very complicated relationship with leading foundations of the day, such as the Slater Fund and, and others at, at Carnegie. And um, um, uh, these, these places funded some of his graduate education, but then kind of wouldn't fully fund it. And I mean, there's just a whole thing with, with Du Bois and, and, and institutional philanthropy. Um, but at the same time, he's someone who knows and recognizes uh, philanthropy by and among African-Americans. Um, and he did some important research on what giving looked like uh, by and among African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so, um, so, so I would say that um, he probably would use the same methods uh, because they, because they did know each other and they were, um, uh, uh, they, they were part of, of different conversations and organizations together. Um, so I can't say that he would have, have, have asked her differently. Um, but I think he, he would also have a different view because he would be, he was very critical of the very people that, that Booker T was very close with. Um, and so in thinking about what it takes to, to gain freedom and gain liberation, um, uh, Washington is very much in those circles trying to navigate those those white power dynamics. Du Bois is outside of that, and in many ways, victim of it, and trying to to critique it. Um, so th- there's there's two different vantage points there. But but I think his methods were pretty much pretty much the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I I I don't want to miss one of the things I didn't want to miss. I've got a couple more questions, but I don't want to miss this. One of the key points you make in the book about Walker's giving, um, mm-hmm. as it relates to the way that philanthropy was happening at the time and continues to happen this way and i'm i was as i was reading this i was reminded of the uh the book that a lot of us read i think this may have even come out of the school there uh the seven faces of philanthropy and the that that Mm. that smaller slice of the giving population that gives in their leisure or what we typically associate Mm. with special events and stuff and one of the key points you make in the book is this idea that walker's giving was given while she was busy, while she was building a business, she was doing a lot of other things. She was an entrepreneur. She wasn't, this wasn't done in her leisure. Um, and so you make comparisons and contrasts to, you know, other, other women giving, you know, uh, mm-hmm. women's giving at the time. And even today, I still don't think, Tyrone, we have detached. And this 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 sort of practically this this is sort of my critique on the sort of the event rhythm that organizations get stuck in. I don't know that we've sort of detached that underlying assumption that we're giving in our leisure, that we have this sort of this hoard of wealth that we can sort of give in our free time. And and that's one of the key messages that you make in the book um, is that she was doing all kinds of crazy things. Great, extraordinary things, but she just she wasn't out just sort of out and about with the ladies giving money away is kind of the message you were trying to make, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. And this, yeah. No, no. I mean, it, it, again, it's trying to understand this idea of giving and generosity as a way of life. And yeah. in this tradition and what she's doing and the community that produced her and how they were, were thinking about it, um, yeah. that this type of giving wasn't something that you waited to do. It wasn't about the surplus. 
Um, it yeah. wasn't about the extra time, the extra money. It's it's about Jim Crow segregation is real and it is confining every like decision I make, every waking moment of the day. It is ever it is omnipresent. It has to be toppled. It has to be brought down. There is there is immediate suffering I can see on my block in my own life. Right. That, that, you know, I can use I can give food to my neighbors. I can help folks. I can also join the NAACP to try to get some anti-lynching laws passed so we won't be mobbed, you know, and attacked. Um, so there's all these things that are defining um, externally imposed that are defining black life during this period. And so Walker emerges as this figure who, again, is like she doesn't have the luxury of waiting. She doesn't have anybody to inherit money from. She doesn't have, you know, she's 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 trying to figure out how to be there. There's this phrase that shows up a lot in the archive, there, a useful person. There's this idea, yes, yeah. this Victorian idea of being a useful uh, person. And for her, it's part of this giving and this advocacy and this activism. So it really is, is this all hands on deck. Now, that's not to say there aren't women of leisure um, in, in, in the African-American tradition. There are. Um, yeah. But but for Walker and what she's representing, that model doesn't fit because you know it's a different set of circumstances. And yet, the way we've kind of entered into the conversation on women's philanthropy, historically, it kind of starts with that because um, there's a lot of focus on 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 the, on the wives and daughters and sisters of the Carnegies yes. and the Rockefellers and those guys. Um, and 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 today, right? We 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 think about what's happening now. We see, you know, Mackenzie Scott is asserting herself um, in, in ways. Um, that we've not seen before. Um, and, and so trying to understand women as givers is also something that I'm grappling with. And this kind of what I'm saying here with Walker is that she doesn't fit the models that historians have given us to this date. She's doing something different than Olivia Sage, who was a big, who was kind of the McKinsey Scott of the early 20th century, mm-hmm, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, uh, so, so how do we see her on her own terms? And we see and recognize her on her own terms as somebody who is, is, is actively trying to meet the immediate needs she sees around her is also trying to deal with the systems and, and structures that are making life difficult. And she does that in partnership with organizations, with individuals, because again, and she does it through her company. She doesn't set up this separate foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's just a different context because it's got to, you got to use everything you can to try to assert the basic, the basic idea mm-hmm. that, that you, you are a human, you have rights and you should be valued and protected. So, so again, it's trying to give voice to this particular tradition. And, and that's something that I think would resonate because again, these, what, what Walker's doing, what African-Americans are doing, we see versions of this in, 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 in Italian, Irish, and German ethnic immigrant communities in, you know, in the United States and, and mutual, for mutual aid and other types of giving and sharing. So, so I, again, it points to this idea of philanthropy as, as part of our common human heritage rather than something that only belongs to this very tiny slice. Um, it's something that all of us can do. And, and Walker, I think Walker's story is about we must do it, right? Because who else is going to do it if, if we don't? Yeah, I think the other thing, one of the other themes that I, I got um, as I was reading through it, I, I think I, one of the key messages I think you definitely wanted us to, that you wanted to convey through her story, she was giving away her money. She wasn't giving away her husband's money. I mean, yes. and, and I think, and I think that's something that I don't know that we've sort that our theories have sort of caught up on in relationship to where our world's at. We have women who are out in some cases out surpassing men in in some places in the world and they're you know they're leading companies and they're you know they're starting their own companies and they're not you know the the, the McKinsey Scott and the the Gates narrative is sort of 
these you know super affluent women essentially giving away their husband's money but in Walker's case we're talking about a woman who's giving away her money and that's a very different conversation that I think the fundraising community you know it, 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 I think that's a very perhaps not a very but is that is that in your mind sort of an overlooked conversation that that maybe we're starting to have more or, or that you were trying to encourage us to have more awareness of yeah, I think that's part of that 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 invisibility that there just yeah. was no way of understanding Walker because the primary way that we think about philanthropists during that time frame is wealthy white people, and when we think about women, the the, the women of that era who asserted themselves in this way were the you know the wives of of the men uh, who yeah, made untold yeah. wealth, and so that's 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 one that's 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 just one model, right? That doesn't explain Walker. That doesn't explain her peers. So yeah, so I very much was trying to say how how do you understand her? How do you understand this person who was actively building? something, but also engaged in this larger struggle for freedom and who has to not only navigate um, white racism through Jim Crow, but also has to navigate sexism. Right. And and so it's a different it's a different dynamic. And all of that shapes and influences um, her giving. Um, and, and so that, that's what I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also trying to tell that story and, and, again, argue for how to how to situate her and understand her. And then that gives insights into understanding women of color today. Right. And, and their unique situation, um, which which is which I am glad is getting much more attention in the field of philanthropy and fundraising. Yeah. So the last thought. Um, so most of my listeners, any of my regular listeners know that I am constantly because for a number of reasons i'm constantly pushing back on this notion of the donor is consumer sort of this paradigm that sort of frames the donor is essentially one and the same as the consumer and i take that all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century when a lot of our fundraising and if you think about a lot of our history of fundraising that's been written in sort of the mainstream conversations it sort of takes us to pr marketing and advertising individuals but when i read your book if we were writing a history of fundraising through the lens of perhaps whoever the quote unquote uh, fundraising wizard or guru or a consultant that was perhaps working between uh, Walker and Booker T. Washington, I don't get the impression it would have been a PR marketing and advertising consultant. (laughs) There's something there about citizenship. There's something there that's more rooted in something other than just consumer behavior. So just talk to me about, um, I, I don't see Walker and I don't see a lot of this um, and I don't think and I, and I don't think a lot of our donors today. But I think I think as we engage our donors beyond this, this unseen middle and as we engage them in more meaningful ways, we're going to have to we're going to have to unle- we're going to have to let go of some of these consumer based assumptions about behavior, about human behavior. What do you yeah, think? For, yeah, for Walker, yeah, this wasn't about the the latest mug or no, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. This this was it was life or death. I mean, she wanted yes. to get money to Booker T. Washington because she believed in in black education because there weren't yes. many options, right? And 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 she became an important philanthropist to historically black colleges and universities um, because again, she she interacted with them very differently than than your your Carnegies and Rockefellers, and and she didn't kind of put strings on their curriculum 
government and, and kind of hold power over them in the ways that, that some of the larger white institutional philanthropies did. Um, and, and so, again, one of the things I say is that every gift that she gave is one that she once needed herself. So today we talk about mm. that in terms of proximity and the importance of a lot yeah. of language and conversation to feel about proximity. And this is when you have that closeness, when it doesn't matter that she became a millionaire. She was still a black woman in Jim Crow America. She yeah. could still be lynched or raped at any time, and, and the perpetrators would never face any kind of justice, and it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's a reality that she can never escape. Somebody like Andrew Carnegie can have an impoverished childhood, but he could come to America and then uh, accrue the benefits of race accrue to him, and he doesn't have to think about that by poverty ever again, right? Yeah. Um, that's not her situation. She can never escape being black and, and a woman, and she doesn't want to. Um, and so this, is, this again, puts her in a different context. And so her, her philanthropy is very much about this lifeblood of generosity, this expression of her dignity, this assertion of resistance and her rights. Um, and, and, and it's about meeting those needs. And, and the other thing that we didn't quite talk about was that um, the, you know, the book is divided into five chapters, and each one is about a different type of gift that she made. And there's only one chapter about money. Uh, which also yep. in this tradition, there are diverse yep. ways to give and things to give. It's not just about money. Um, and, and so she provided education. Um, she was very active in the anti-lynching movement, the women's suffrage movement, the temperance movement. Um, she she was very much about using her voice to raise important issues of the day. She provided economic opportunities for African-Americans in a Jim Crow economy that didn't want them to work and didn't want them to progress. Um, yeah. So it gives us a broad way of thinking about, because my work is all about challenging definitions, um, and, and it gets to this larger issue that you're raising here. It's like this is this is not um, about the consumer exchange. This is this is literally about life and death, and this is yeah. literally about holding America to account to the promises it's made to all of its people. Um, and so again, it's a different dynamic um, that's going on here with with the giving. As 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 the black community, perhaps plays a more significant and meaningful role in philanthropy. Is it fair to say that proximity is going to become far more important? I remember that's essentially the question I'm asking, but let me also offer this. I remember when Brian, Brian Stevenson uh, spoke at the 2018 AFP conference um, in New Orleans, and he taught, and, and you know that that he was giving that message that he was routinely giving about proximity, and his message was largely about, you know, and I thought, how many of these fundraisers in this room that are listening to him talk about proximity? I mean, his his message is his message was largely that of being closer to the people that are sort of on the fringes, and he's working in the prisons, and how close can we get to understanding where they are? But I also thought part of his message was. Some of you fundraisers need to get a little closer to your, your donors. And so regardless of how, regardless of what the size of the contribution is, in the black community, how important is proximity? So, you know, do you follow the line of question? Do you follow what I'm asking? I think so. I, th I think um, I think it's, well, I think there's different ways to think about it. So one, I think we are hearing that uh, from from these communities that they want to see people 
um, who look like them involved you know, in the organizations they want uh, yeah. a sense of, of, of the welcoming and, and the belonging. Um, yeah. I think there's also important as, which is what I've tried to do in the book is really show, you know, you've got to understand the philanthropic cultures and traditions of these communities. Um, yeah. I always tell folks, cause there's, there's a lot of people want to know how do you engage donors of color and that, and I always, you know, I say, well, one, you've got to get you know some knowledge about these culture because we have a very limited view and definition of who counts as a philanthropist and what counts as yeah. philanthropy. So, so understanding this tradition, understanding Walker, right, allows you to disabuse yourself of this notion that it's only what wealthy white folks do. Once you get yeah. that out of the way, right, then the key becomes um, um, reaching out and engaging and developing um, um, accessible pathways for people to connect with you. Um, and, and one of the things I, I, always, I also tell fundraisers is that, again, these communities have always been giving. Whether or not they're giving to your organization is a whole yes. different issue. Yes, right. 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 It's yes. a whole different issue. So yes. so now the question is, how are you going to get tuned in and what does that mean? And you can't just do that by just waking up today and just do you have to really I think you need to do some internal work. I think you need to think about your relationship with these various communities. Um, why hasn't there been engagement? Um, how does your mission resonate? Um, some organizations will have a historical problem. Um, that they they have either been neglecting these communities or not engaging them, or there may be some 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 problem in in the way that organization has interacted. Others, it's just you know haven't haven't taken the time, haven't made it a priority. But whatever it is, you got to figure out why your organization hasn't been hospitable, and that means kind of leaning into that question. That means if 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 your donors of color are not responding to that 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 annual appeal, um, you you can't just kind of say, oh well, I sent it. You know, you've kind of kind of like pick up the phone, try to get an audience, say, what's going on? What 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 aspects of our work might resonate you? What where where are we getting it wrong? Right. And and I think it's important to kind of do that, uh, that work, because at, at the end of the day, fundraisers have a lot of control here because fundraisers make decisions about who they're going to visit, who they're yeah. going to call, who yeah. they're going to write to, who gets invited yeah. to the event. Right. Okay. So I think it's important to do institution and culture wide systems change and to look at these things and diversify your board and, and change your hiring and look at your practices. And while you're doing those things, I think you can start kind of calling the uncalled, inviting the uninvited. Right. And, but but really listening and saying, hey, what, what you know, you're a value constituent. And so I want to understand things from your perspective um, and lean into those donor silences. It doesn't mean they're not interested. It may be you're missing something. Um, and that that's the critical thing. I think that's one critical thing that I think is missing. People have to lean into that and really do this work. And that's why I tell the um, in the book, I have a case study of the Smithsonian's campaign for mm -hmm. the National Museum of African-American History. And I just think it is pointing us in that direction of what an inclusive campaign looks like, because this is this Smithsonian raised yes. $300 million, left us with this beautiful building, this incredible facility on the mall, and it's in a critical part of our collective history. I've been, I've taken my family. It is moving the moment you set foot in. Everybody needs to go. And so it, the privilege of interviewing fundraisers from that campaign and how they intentionally thought about engaging the everyday folks, engaging the everyday givers who had never been a part of campaigns before, um, people of color. Um, and let's face it, it's the Smithsonian. They're not kind of a close, proximate institution, right? It's it's this yeah. arts and culture, kind of a distant organization, if you will, yeah. right, compared to the church and fraternities and other things that yeah. are closer, right? But they took the time and they did the work and they kept showing up.
and they hired African-American fundraisers. And, and, and they would say it was hard for us, right? We people who, who had been neglected or didn't know anything about the Smithsonian, but we kept showing up. We kept responding to their obje- objections. We kept showing that we cared and we were invested. And they, they, and they were just blown away by the response. And I think there's a lesson. That's why I highlighted in the book. I think there's a lesson there. Um, and I've been privileged to, and the Smithsonian has invited me in and I've interacted with some of their donors and their fundraisers. And, and so it's, it's important to kind of take these lessons and think about how do we structure campaigns and, and think about our work in ways that will be more accessible and open to, to the diverse America that, that we are. Do you get frustrated? Before I let you go, I got to ask this question. <laughs> do you get frustrated when people ask you that question? How do you appeal to African-American donors, for example, to the point where going back to this idea that at the beginning of the 20th century, we, we basically started fundraising on this, you know, PR marketing and advertising sort of frame. And you kind of almost can see right through it when they ask that question as if they're looking for an algorithm, right? Mm-hmm. They're looking for basically a science that sort of creates this predictable sort of algorithm so that they can sort of put that in motion. And I think what's happening in our society Dr. Freeman, is that basically as we become more pluralistic, as we become more diverse, algorithms are not going to, they're going to let us down. They're going to let us down. And so when I read your book and I hear about, when I hear the word proximity, for example, I'm hearing you're just going to have to move in closer and get to know these people and have conversations, negotiate the gift like Washington and and Walker did in that, in what you were describing there. It's not going to be predictable. Um, and, 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 and part of the reason I think the story, if you think about, I take it all the way back to the enlightenment. So if you think about, you know, we wanted a very predictable sort of, we were building machine. We got to the point where we were building machines during the industrial revolution. And then we're at the beginning of the 20th century when this story that you're telling is playing out. And she didn't fit the predictable model. She didn't fit the mold. <laughs> she, you know, n- nobody in the African American community did. That wasn't the that wasn't the algorithm that we wanted. Right. But I don't know that anybody wants an algorithm now any more than they did then. Do you yeah. follow what I'm saying? I do. There is sometimes there can be a sense in the question that there's there's a pill or there's a phrase or there's yes. something that will unlock. And, and, and you make the point. No, it, it really is about the engagement. And at the same time, I, I, can, I, can, um, I, I value and I appreciate the question because I recognize, too, that people are concerned about language and they're, they're concerned about saying the wrong thing as well, too. So I think there's, a, there's, you know, there's, there's some other things that are at play, too. But, but one of the things, too, is really about, you know, um, you know I, I can teach a lot about the history and culture of African-American philanthropy. At the end yeah. of the day, you're, you're going to sit down with an individual. And, yes, sir. and you, yeah. need to, you need to you need to understand that individual on their own terms. And I can yeah. tell you things like, you know, most African-American philanthropy flows through the black church. That does not mean that the individual in front of you. Right. Is is is, is a deacon in the church and is the, the <laughs> highest title. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that that's the focal point for them. Right. right. Now, that's important to have that perspective and to know that. Right. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with with um, that individual. And that's that's the thing I say. Always let that guide you, because I think part of knowing and valuing the culture is just to just just to make sure that we're we're getting those meetings to begin with, because a lot of those I mean, donors of color, which you know, the blackboard study from a few years ago, donors of color reported way lowers of cultivation compared to their white peers. So, I mean, just fundraisers are just not reaching out to them and they're telling us that. 
So yeah. part of knowing this culture and understanding these yeah. things is to help people say, hey, right, um, th- th- there is there is giving and, you know, philanthropy is diverse and, 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 and everybody does it. Right. So so I need to, again, start calling the uncalled, visiting the unvisited and engaging. Yeah. Uh, but then you're going to be dealing with an individual. And, you know, and a good friend of mine, Anna Barber, is one of those fundraisers from the Smithsonian. If you haven't had her on the show, you should. But she, okay. she tells me she tells me all the time. And she personally for, for the museum, she solicited Michael Jordan. She solicited Denzel and Pauletta Washington. And she solicited a whole range of other people who are not celebrities. And she says to me all the time, Tyrone, I promise you, I did not say anything to my black Smithsonian donors that I didn't say to, to the white Smithsonian donors. It's right, not about, right. it's, it's really about that engagement and taking the time to get to know them and, and, and see what's going to work and make sense so that we could build this thing or do this thing together. Yeah. If I called, if I called Mrs. Walker right now and asked her for a meeting, she'd take my meeting, wouldn't she? <laughs> and, and she'd let me buy her a cup of coffee, you think? Well, it depends on what you're representing, right? Can you, can you help the cause of liberation, right? <laughs> yeah, but she wouldn't. But she, yeah, yeah, she wouldn't have turned down my meeting. I'm guess. I'm just asking. I, I think part of what I think part of what is so challenging about um, what you and I are sort of advocating for in the back end of this conversation is that question. It's not the predictability of what what Walker would have given to her, what she wouldn't have. It's it's would she take my meeting to begin with, and and I'm just trying to constantly push, you know, when I'm doing my coaching work, I just want to push that development officer to the lunch table, have the audacity to pick up the phone, figure out a way to get in front of, in front of her to have that conversation, create that proximity, um, and uh, and enjoy the sort of the what emerges from that, not try to yeah. you know necessarily predict it. Yes. Yes. Totally agree. With you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Doctor Freeman, please tell us how we get the book. Tell, direct us. I mean, I'm, I I know we can get it on Amazon and those sorts of places, but where would yeah. you like to direct people to? Um, remind us um, the name of the book and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah. And the other thing I want you to make sure uh, people are gonna so as a general sort of phenomenon that emerges from this podcast as well as others is you're going to get more feedback and people are going to reach out to you, generally you more than me. I'm not going to hear a lot of uh, people aren't going to reach out and say, hey, Jason, let's talk about this. They're going to reach out to you. So in addition to telling us how to find your book, tell us how people can just reach out to you if they want to start a conversation. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Um, So as you said, so the book is available wherever books are sold, um, all your online retailers. I would also urge people to, you know, shout out your local independent booksellers. They can get it for you, too, just as easily as the big uh, online um, uh, retailers can. And I would particularly directly to the website for the book, which is www.gospelofgiving.com. Uh, you can learn more about Madam Walker. You can get direct links to buy the book, um, access to a 30% discount through the publisher, which is the University of Illinois Press. Um, and I also will blog on there occasionally. You can also send me emails through gospelofgiving.com. I'm on Twitter um, at McKinley uh, Tyrone, uh, which is you know my middle name, my first name. Um, and uh, also I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Tyrone McKinley Freeman, PhD, uh, Twitter at McKinley Tyrone and uh, at gospelofgiving.com. Thank you, Dr. Freeman. So just as a reminder, one more time, the name of the book is Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving. 
black women's philanthropy during Jim Crow. Uh, Dr. Freeman, it has certainly been a pleasure. Let me ask you, what, what's, what's up next on your plate? What are you going to write next? Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so there's more books uh, uh, underway. Um, uh, I don't want to let too much, uh, too much of the cat out of the okay, bag, but okay. uh, uh, just uh, there'll be some more uh, historical biographies like this, as well yes. as some overviews of, of philanthropy in communities of color and some uh, some thought pieces in, in some of the, the, the philanthropy and fundraising uh, vehicles that you'll be seeing soon, too. Well, as you continue to do that, you're always welcome back. Uh, thank, thank you for you. being my guest today. It has certainly been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.